Section six of British Seabirds by Charles Dixon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four Divers, Grebes, and Cormorants. The birds included in the present chapter belong to three well-defined families. None of them are so completely pelagic as the auks, and yet, according to season, many of them are interesting features in the bird life of the coast. Unfortunately for the summer visitor to the seaside, the divers will be absent. They are birds that resort chiefly to inland districts to rear their young, or are only known as winter visitors to the British coasts. The divers form a small but well-marked family known as Columbidae, consisting of a single genus, Columbus, into which are grouped the four species that are now known to science. The divers are allied to the auks on the one hand, to the grebes on the other, although systematists are not yet agreed upon the degree of their relationship. United, these three families form Dr. Schlater's order, Pygopodes. In every way, the divers are remarkably well fitted for an aquatic life. Their strong tarsi are laterally compressed, a form best suited for cleaving the water. The hind toe is well developed, and on the same plane as the rest. The feet are webbed, the bill is long, straight, spear-shaped and conical, admirably adapted for seizing the finny prey. The wings are comparatively short, yet capable of bearing the bird at great speed. The tail is short and fairly developed. The divers in nuptial plumage are remarkably handsome birds, the neck being striped or richly marked, and the upper plumage beautifully spotted or adorned with white bars. They are all more or less gregarious birds during winter, and well-marked social tendencies are displayed in some species during the breeding season. Their migrations, if comparatively short, are pronounced and regular. The young are hatched covered with down, able to swim with ease almost immediately. Adults molt in autumn, and assume their neutral plumage in winter, a period doubtless when they pair, the winter plumage thus being carried for a short time. Young divers carry their first plumage through the winter until the following spring, not molting in December with their parents, when they assume their summer plumage, but the neutral ornaments are not so brilliant in colour as in adults. Whether the vernal change in colour is effected without molting, as in the Yorks and some of the Limiculae, appears not to have yet been ascertained. All the species of divers are visitors to the British islands, but only two breed in them, and one is an exceptionally irregular straggler. This is the largest of them all, the white-billed diver, Columbus adamici, and a species apparently circumpolar in its distribution. The divers are all birds of the north temperate or arctic regions during summer. In winter their range is much more extended, almost reaching to the northern tropics. With this brief resume of their more salient characteristics, we will now proceed to a more detailed examination of their economy. Great Northern Diver this species, the Columbus glacialis of Nilaeus and of ornithologists generally, is, in its breeding plumage, one of the handsomest of British birds. Its chief characteristics are its large size, about that of a goose, black head and neck, double semi-collars of white and black vertical stripes, and black upper parts, marked with white spots of varying size, and arranged in a series of belts. Whether it actually breeds within our limits has not yet been absolutely determined, although evidence is forthcoming that seems to point to the fact. Unfortunately for the seaside student of bird life, the great northern diver is only known as a winter visitor. At that season, however, it may be met with pretty frequently off the British coasts. 
the young birds especially venturing into our bays and creeks and estuaries older individuals as a rule keeping further out to sea adult birds are however often observed near the coasts of south devonshire and cornwall i have known them linger in the waters near here until the summer has been well advanced young birds of this species in the brown and white dress characteristic of immaturity may often be seen quietly fishing under the cliffs notably in tor bay one very remarkable thing about this diver is its singular habit of immersing the body to such a depth that the back is quite under water it often so sinks itself when menaced by danger and then almost out of sight swims away with great speed if pursuit is still continued all but the neck is sunk below the surface and finally if hotly pressed the bird will disappear entirely and swim along under water at a speed absolutely astonishing gatke reports that this diver when chased by a boat under these circumstances will dive and allow the boat to pass over it rising again in the rear of it a habit which my own observations of the bird completely confirm how this act of immersion without apparent effort is accomplished remains a mystery and offers a problem in animal mechanics by no means easy of solution the great northern diver is rarely seen on land perhaps never except during the breeding season its movements on shore are ungainly in the extreme the legs being placed so far back that the bird can only push itself along in a crawling sort of way it is equally rarely seen in the air and apparently only uses its wings to fly when performing its annual migrations how the species still retains the function of flight at all seems almost a mystery but perhaps the constant use of the wings in the water keeps them to a standard of efficiency this diver is one of the least gregarious and save on passage is rarely met with in numbers greater than a pair it seems to be the rule for odd pairs to take up their residence in certain spots during the breeding season after that period the bird is usually met with solitary and the young individuals unlike so many others that evince strong gregarious propensities for the most part wander about alone this diver like most big birds is shy and wary although i have repeatedly watched it from the cliffs in tor bay evincing little concern at my presence as may be gathered from the foregoing remarks the great northern diver is a proficient in the art of diving and is said to be able to remain as long as eight minutes beneath the surface a period of time which seems incredible the depth to which it sometimes descends is enormous it has been captured in a net thirty fathoms from the surface the food of this diver is almost if not absolutely composed of fish during the non-breeding season divers are not particularly noisy birds but at their nesting places the cries they utter are both loud and startling described by some listeners as similar to the screams of tortured children as shrieks of maddened laughter or as weird and melancholy howls by others it is a somewhat remarkable fact that the great northern diver breeds nowhere in europe except on iceland it is an american species and nests from greenland westwards to alaska south of the arctic circle to the more northern of the united states it reaches its breeding grounds in pairs toward the ends of may as soon as the northern waters are free from ice its favourite nesting places are secluded tarns and lakes and an island is always selected if possible doubtless from motives of security the nest always made upon the ground varies a good deal in size according to the local requirements on wet marshy ground it is large and composed of a heap of half-rotten sedges rushes reeds and such like vegetation lined with dry bits of broken reed and withered grass on drier and barer situations it is little more than a hollow in the sand or hard ground with perhaps a few bits of dry grass for lining 
the birds are very alert and watchful whilst nesting as if fully conscious of their comparative difficulty in escaping from danger on the land one bird is generally on the lookout whilst the other sits and at the least danger the alarm is given and the incubating partner shuffles off in a floundering way to the water a path is thus soon worn from the nest to the lake the eggs are almost invariably too elongated and varying in ground colour from russet brown to olive brown spotted sparingly with blackish brown and paler brown when the young are sufficiently matured the inland haunts are deserted and the nomad wandering life upon the sea resumed black-throated diver the present species of diver much smaller than the preceding the colymbus arcticus of linnaeus and most other writers is the rarest of the three that visit the british islands regularly and perhaps we might also say the most beautiful in neutral dress all its showy colours and patterns however are on the head neck and upper parts the under surface being white the head is grey the throat patch black above which is a semi-collar of white striped vertically with black the sides of the neck are also striped with black and white whilst the black upper parts of the body are conspicuously marked with a regular series of neatly square white spots becoming oval in shape on the wing coverts the bill is black the irides crimson after the autumn moult all this finery is lost and the upper parts become a nearly uniform blackish-brown this diver breeds sparingly in various parts of the hebrides and the highlands from argyll to caithness elsewhere it is only known as a winter visitor in many of its habits it closely resembles the preceding species it is exclusively aquatic only seeking the land during the breeding season but is perhaps not quite so oceanic as that bird in the winter when it not unfrequently haunts inland waters it dives with equal skill flies with the same powerful rapidity and utters during the nesting season very similar unearthly cries fish form the chief food of this diver but it is said also to capture frogs most of the examples of this diver are seen close inshore on our eastern and southern coast principally during winter are immature the older birds as a rule keeping further out to sea the black-throated diver indulges in the same peculiar habit of gradually sinking its body in the sea when alarmed and will frequently seek to escape pursuit by diving outright and swimming under water for a considerable distance the black-throated diver that breeds with us retire to their inland haunts in may its favourite nesting places are on islands in moorland locks pools and tarns it displays few social tendencies at this season although several pairs not unfrequently nest within a comparatively small area of exceptionally suitable country each nevertheless keeping to its own peculiar haunt this diver may also pair for life seeing that it evinces considerable attachment to certain favourite nesting places the nest is always made upon the ground and seldom very far from the water to which the frightened bird can retire readily an island covered with short herbage is always preferred in scotland but in some places the bare shingly beach is selected this nest often of the slightest construction is made of stalks of plants roots and all kinds of drifted vegetable fragments lined with grass sometimes no nest whatever is made the two eggs are narrow and elongated olive or rufous brown sparingly spotted and speckled with blackish brown and paler brown the sitting bird is ever on the alert to slip off into the water at the first alarm and sometimes both birds will fly round and round in anxiety for the fate of their treasured eggs a movement seawards is soon taken when the young are sufficiently matured this diver has a wide geographic range outside our limits extending across europe and asia to japan and north-west america perhaps as far as hudson bay american authorities however 
insist upon the specific distinctness of most of the black-throated divers found in alaska and have named this form c pacificus red-throated diver smallest of the british divers the present species the Columbus septentrionalis of Linnaeus and modern authorities is also the best known and the most widely distributed, is also the least showy neutral dress. In this plumage the throat is marked with an elongated patch of chestnut, the head and sides of the neck are ash-brown, the latter striped with black and white, the general colour of the upper plumage blackish-brown, sparingly spotted with white, and the underparts are white. The plumage, as in all the divers, is remarkably dense and compact, adapted in every way to the aquatic habits of the bird. The red-throated diver is a fairly frequent visitor, during autumn and winter, off the English coasts, often entering bays in the mouths of wide rivers. In summer, however, it becomes much more local, retiring then to haunts in Scotland, especially in the Hebrides, and along the wild and little populated western districts, from the Clyde northwards to the Shetlands. Outside our limits, this diver has a very wide distribution, occupying in summer the arctic and north temperate regions of europe asia and america in winter migrating southwards for a thousand miles or more the red-throated diver is certainly the most gregarious species and in winter may not unfrequently be seen in gatherings of varying size in connection with this trait mention may be made of the extraordinary numbers of this bird that on the second and third of december eighteen seventy nine passed heligoland the movement was not strictly a migratory one but a grand flight of storm-driven, frozen-out birds, seeking more congenial haunts. Gatke tells us that during this visitation there was about thirteen degrees of frost, an easterly wind, and a snowstorm in the evening. The divers were by no means alone in their distress, for hundreds of thousands of duck, geese, and swans, curlews, dunlins, and oyster-catchers, passed from east to west. From early morning until noon, on both days in succession, the divers were seen in one incessant stream travelling north-east, in numbers estimated almost by the million. Well may Gatke have wondered whence such vast multitudes came, and whither they were going, and what was the initial cause of such gregarious instincts, never manifested in this diver under any ordinary circumstances. The red-throated diver is a master of the art of diving, and is often seen slowly to sink its body under water when alarmed. It also flies with great strength and speed, and is said to show more preference for flying than either of its congeners. The food of this diver is chiefly composed of fish. Its ordinary note is a harsh ack or hark, but at the nesting places the same wild unearthly cries are uttered that are equally characteristic of the other species. These cries are said to foretell rain or rough weather, and have caused the bird to be called rain goose in many highland districts. The red-throated diver, however agile and graceful it may be in the water or even in the air, is a clumsy object on the land, incapable of walking upright, owing to the backward position of its legs, and compelled to shovel along with its breast touching the surface. In winter these divers are by no means shy, and I have many times watched them pursuing their fishy operations from my station on the cliffs. In May the red-throated diver retires to its breeding stations, the wild romantic locks and pools so characteristic a feature of the highlands and the Hebrides. Solitary pairs generally scatter themselves over the district, presenting intrusion and keeping to their own particular haunt. This diver probably pairs for life, returning each successive season to a certain spot to nest. An island is usually selected for the nest, which is invariably made upon the ground, and consists generally of little more than a hollow, into which is collected a few bits of withered vegetation. 
as may be expected this nest is seldom made far from the water so that at the least alarm the sitting bird can slip off and shuffle into the water at once the two narrow elongated eggs are olive or buffish brown spotted and speckled with blackish brown and pale brown grebes in many respects grebes are remarkable birds they form so well defined a group that no other known bird can possibly be confused with them their characteristics being absolutely unique among the class aves the most noticeable external features of a grebe are its relatively short body laterally compressed tarsi lobed feet rudimentary and functionless tail and dense compact plumage of a peculiar silky texture twenty or so species of grebe are grouped into a single family called Podicipedidae, of which the genus Podicieps, or more correctly Podicipes, the grebes are almost cosmopolitan five well-marked species are found in europe all of which being visitants or regular residents are included in the british avifauna in the colours of their plumage the grebes are not very remarkable with the exception of the crests or tippets assumed by some species during the neutral period plain browns predominate on the upper surface the underparts are almost always glossy white the grebes fly well dive with great dexterity but their movements on the ground are not graceful the young are hatched covered with a close down and able to swim at once the grebes have a complete moult in autumn and assume their neutral ornaments in spring the quill feathers are moulted so rapidly that for some little time the birds are unable to fly as is the case with the geese and some others it is only during the winter months that the grebes become pelagic or marine in their habits and even some species are much less addicted to a sea life than others we will now proceed briefly to glance at the british species great crested grebe this the largest species the Podicipes cristantus of naturalists is chiefly an inland bird but resorts to the sea when fresh waters are frozen i have sometimes met with half a dozen together in a quiet bay under these circumstances and very graceful interesting birds they are they rarely come upon the land at these times swimming about and diving from time to time in quest of food like the divers they sometimes sink the body very low in the water but under ordinary conditions sit rather high with the long neck held well up the head turned at intervals in all directions as if on the lookout for enemies they always prefer to dive when pursued and as this species more especially is in great demand by plumisseries and subject to much persecution it is wary and shy in extreme the food of this grebe whilst on the sea is composed largely of fish but inland the bird's tastes are more omnivorous sometimes many of its own feathers are found in its stomach mixed with the food but as yet ornithologists have been unable to ascertain any plausible explanation of the fact in spring the adults assume two very conspicuous crests or horns of a dark brown colour and a tippet or ruff of bright bay shading into nearly black on the margin the birds now retire inland to meres and lakes where the shallows are full of reeds sedges rushes and other aquatic vegetation and here at some distance from the shore a large floating nest is made composed of dead and decaying vegetation as the bird is sometimes gregarious several nests may often be found within a small area huge floating rafts moored to the reeds or built up from the bottom of the shallow water in a shallow depression at the top four or five eggs are laid elliptical in shape chalky in texture and white until contact with the bird's wet feet and the wet nest covers them with stains several mock nests are often made in the vicinity of the one containing the eggs probably destined as resting places for the future young 
the sitting bird very dexterously covers its eggs with weed when alarmed previous to slipping off the nest into the water the note of this grebe is a loud cack red-necked grebe this grebe the podicipes grisigena of bodart and the p rubricollis of most modern naturalists is a fairly common winter visitor to the seas off our eastern and southern coasts from the orkneys to cornwall the range of the red-necked grebe outside our limits is a wide one and embraces during the summer the sub-arctic portions of europe asia and america becoming much more southerly in winter during winter this grebe may be met with close inshore yet it seldom or never visits the land living exclusively on the sea its habits at this season do not differ in any marked degree from those of its congeners it may be seen swimming to and fro sometimes just outside the fringe of rough surf diving from time to time in quest of its food which in this season is composed of fish principally the neutral ornaments of this grebe are not so conspicuous as those of the preceding species the dark crests are shorter the tippet is scarcely perceptible and the lower neck and upper breast are rich chestnut in winter plumage this grebe is best distinguished by its large size necks in this respect to the great crested grebe and by the absence of the white streak over the eye which characterizes that bird then in april the red-necked grebe returns to its accustomed inland summer haunts to breed these are reed and rush fringed lakes and ponds here in the shallows a floating nest of rotten vegetation is formed smaller than that of the preceding species but otherwise closely resembling it many pairs may be found breeding close together in colonies so to speak the four or five elliptical shaped eggs are laid in may or june dirty white in colour chalky in texture the same habit of covering the eggs with weeds previous to leaving them may also be noted black-necked grebe this bird the Podicipes nigricollis of systematis is so rarely met with in the british area that it scarcely requires more than a passing allusion examples occasionally occur on our eastern and southern coasts especially but the bird is too rare to form any feature in the ornithology of the british seaboard it may be readily distinguished from the other european grebes by its sadly upcurved bill and by the large amount of white on the primaries and secondaries in the neutral plumage the head and neck are black in its habits generally it differs little from the other species scolovian grebe along the eastern coasts of england and round most of the scottish littoral as well as off ireland this species the podicipes cornutus of most naturalists is of tolerably frequent occurrence during winter it requires all the skill of an expert ornithologist to distinguish this grebe in winter plumage so closely does it resemble the red-necked species it is a shorter winged bird and has the three outermost secondaries dusky brown instead of white as in that bird whilst the previous species is always distinguishable by its upcurved bill there is nothing in the habits of this grebe to call for special remark it keeps exclusively to the water dives to escape danger and to capture prey and swims beneath the surface as adroitly as a frog the scolovian grebe is a wide-ranging species inhabiting during summer months the arctic and subarctic regions of europe asia and america retiring southwards in winter this grebe is exceptionally remarkable for its neutral ornaments but which as usual are confined to the head and upper neck two chestnut or bay-coloured crests start backwards over the eyes whilst the tippet is black this ornament when extended to its utmost looks very beautiful and gives the head an appearance of being surrounded by a glittering aureole this grebe is a late breeder the eggs not being laid before june it retires to fresh-water pools for the purpose of nesting and resembles the other species closely in its habits at this season 
making a slovenly floating nest and laying four or five dull white eggs little grebe this species is the smallest of the european grebes and certainly by far the best known member of the family found in the british islands it is rather remarkable that the little grebe was unknown as a distinct species to linnaeus it was known to Britain as Columbus Minor, and to most modern ornithologists as Podicipes Minor, although some few writers speak of this bird as P. Pluviatilis. Outside the British Islands it has a very wide distribution in Europe, Asia and Africa, but the little grebe of America is a distinct species. The little grebe is found more or less frequently on the coast during winter, driven there too when frost seal up its inland haunts. On the coast this bird is more partial to the brackish backwaters, dikes and estuaries than to the open sea. The food of this bird consists not only of fish, but small crustaceans and mollusks, aquatic insects, young frogs and various vegetable fragments. Its habits are very similar to those of the other grebes. Its swimming and diving powers are wonderful. Its flight on occasion is rapid and strong, whilst its note is a shrill but not very loud wheat. In its nesting economy the little grebe closely resembles its congeners. It quits the coast in spring, resorting to inland pools, often of very small size, making its usually floating or water-surrounded nest amongst the vegetation fringing the shallows, on which it deposits five or six eggs, dull white in colour. The parents often dive with their young from the nest to carry them out of impending danger, a habit common to all species in this genus. Cormorants the grebes are so little in evidence to the seaside naturalists that an account of them seems more like a digression in our narrative than a continuation of our observations concerning the bird life of the sea. We now, however, reach another pelagic group, consisting of birds that form an important and seldom absent feature in marine ornithology. And yet, so great is the adaptability of some species, the cormorant is by no means exclusively confined to the sea, has many inland breeding stations, and repeatedly wanders from the coast to fresh waters, where an abundant supply of fish offers a solace to its great voracity. The cormorants and the gannet are members of the family Phalacrocoracidae, and are generally distinct from each other. Their principal external characteristics are the webbed feet, each toe, including the hind one, being connected by a membrane, the long and powerful wings, and the strong beak, the young birds in this family are hatched naked and blind, but soon become clothed with down. The first plumage differs considerably from that of maturity, and the latter are not rarely retained for several years. These birds have but one actual molt in the year, in autumn, but just previous to the pairing season in winter, crests in some species, and ornamental filaments and tufts in others, are assumed, but are lost by abrasion during the ensuing breeding period. Three members of this family are British, and breed abundantly within our limits, Cormorants and gannets are widely dispersed species, the former are almost cosmopolitan, only being absent from the polar regions and Polynesia, the latter are most abundant in the tropics and the southern seas. A detailed account of the three British species will now be given. Cormorant From the autumn onwards to the following spring, there are few parts of the coast, indeed, where this bird, the Phalacrocorax carbo of ornithologists, may not be seen whilst even in summer it is sufficiently widely dispersed to merit as classing it as common. It is, however, seldom seen off low-lying coasts, save after the breeding season, or except such individuals as have not yet reached maturity. There is but one other British species with which the cormorants may be confused, and that is the shag, but even then the difference in size is sufficiently great for the much larger cormorant to be readily identified. Very black, very heavy, and very clumsy the cormorant looks, as he rises in slow, cumbersome flight from the sea, 
or unfolds his big bronze green wings and flutters into the air from a rock shelf or sea-girdled pinnacle but very soon one's opinion of him undergoes a change as when once fairly on his way he passes swiftly enough over the sea to a distant resting-place or after flying some distance pitches down into the water the colours of the cormorant are not seen to best advantage at a distance certainly the prevailing colour is black but this is richly loricated with green and purple tints whilst most of the upper plumage of the body is a beautiful bronzy brown the feathers being margined with soft velvety black shot with green the throat is white as are also the sides of the head whilst the bright yellow gape and bare portions of the throat form a pleasing contrast to the more sombre hues as the breeding season approaches the cormorant increases in beauty large white patches of silky feathers spring out from the thighs and the dark head and neck become covered by feathery filaments of white perhaps the cormorant is most interesting when engaged searching for food this bird obtains its food in various ways most frequently of all it swims to and fro diving with a headlong plunge at intervals sometimes it swims with its body low in the water and the head and neck below the surface peering about in quest of fish less frequently it takes up its station on a rock or even a tree from, from which it flies from time to time kingfisher-like to capture a fish near the surface or occasionally it dies from such a situation and pursues its finny food far down into the crystal depths the cormorant however never fishes like the gannets and the terns by a headlong plunge from the sky this bird may often be met with fishing in fresh water at some distance inland waterton records how it used to fish his lake at walton hall but the habits of the bird on sea and shore shall exclusively claim our attention here after a meal the cormorant is very fond of resorting to a rock to rest and to dry its plumage standing perfectly motionless with its wings uplifted and outspread few if any birds can excel the cormorant in diving it flies with the very fish themselves and seems as much at home beneath the surface of the water as in the air the cormorant when taken young is easily tamed and from the earliest recorded times it has been trained to capture fish for its owner to this day the chinese and japanese train cormorants for this purpose in england this sport was once a regal pleasure the master of the cormorants finding a place in the royal household according to professor newton the sport still lingers amongst a few willoughby asserts that the trained cormorant was carried hooded until cast off but nowadays its bearer protects his eyes from a stroke from the bird's beak with a wire mask a strap or a ring is fastened round the cormorant's neck to prevent it swallowing its captures just as we muzzle a ferret to prevent it lying up all who have witnessed this novel way of fishing testify to the bird's marvellous skill in catching fish after fish until the guller pouch will hold no more and the cormorant is taken and the fish removed the food of this bird is composed almost entirely of fish in winter cormorants become even more gregarious often associating in large flocks which wander far in quest of food this bird is not so completely pelagic in its habits as the auks the divers and the grebes it generally retires to the caves and shelves of the cliffs to sleep while stormy weather will drive it shoreward soon where it will sit and mope on the rocks or shelter in the quiet creeks or under the lee of cliffs as if waiting for the sea to subside and allow its labours being renewed as the cormorant returns for years in succession to one particular spot to breed there can be little doubt that it pairs for life the birds begin to associate closely in pairs somewhat early in spring but actual nesting duties do not commence for a little time after that event in most places the cormorant breeds in colonies the size apparently varying according to the amount of accommodation for the present purpose we need not describe in detail any of the inland nesting places of this species 
beyond remarking that the bird often breeds in trees like rooks making a huge nest of sticks and twigs lined with grass upon the coast the favourite breeding resorts of the cormorant are ranges of lofty cliffs and small low islands and reefs the nest may thus either be on the ground as at the farne islands for instance or on a ledge of the cliffs when in the former situation it is generally composed of masses of seaweed stalks of marine plants and lined with green grass or other herbage a cormorant's nesting place is by no means a pleasant one for persons whose olfactory nerves are sensitive a smell from the decaying fish and from the droppings of the birds can literally whitewash the whole vicinity being sickening in the extreme other sea-fowl generally give these colonies a wide berth. The oaks are from three to six in number, of a delicate bluish-green, where the colour can be detected through the abundant coating of lime, small for the size of the bird, and long and oval in shape. When disturbed, the sitting cormorants make little demonstration, but fly out to sea at once. But one breed is reared in the season, and the eggs are deposited during April or May in the British Islands. The cormorant is a silent bird. The only note I have ever heard it utter has been a croaking one at the nest shag this species the pelicanus graculus of linnaeus and latham and the phalacrocorax graculus of most modern writers is readily distinguished from the cormorant by its smaller size more glossy appearance and much greener general coloration shag differs structurally from the cormorant in possessing only twelve tail feathers the latter bird having fourteen the neutral ornaments are also very different for just previous to the breeding season in early spring a nodding plume or frontal crest of recurved feathers is assumed the shag is a much more marine bird than the cormorant and its appearance inland is exceptional of the two species the shag is certainly the commonest and most widely dispersed being met with off almost all parts of the british coasts but preference is shown for such as are rocky and where the ranges of cliffs are full of hollows and caves outside our islands the range of the shag is restricted to the coasts of western europe and the mediterranean basin as a rule the shag keeps well into the coast seeking for its food in the somewhat deep waters below the rocks and retiring to some fissure or cave to sleep its habits in most respects are very similar to the larger species it flies well and rapidly if in a somewhat laboured manner dives as skilfully as its ally and often indulges in the habit of sitting on the rocks with wings extended basking in the sun it is equally gregarious during the non-breeding season and it is no uncommon thing to see a hundred or more birds of this species sitting in solemn statuesque rows on some sea-encircled rock gorged with fish and digesting their food at these gatherings the birds may be noticed still fishing in the sea around or flying up to or leaving the rocky resting-place the young birds congregate indiscriminately with the adults the fishing shag is a very interesting object it may be watched quietly swimming along and every now and then springing half out of the water arching his long neck and then diving head first into the sea soon he reappears again the body coming into view all at once it may be close to where he dived or it may be fifty or a hundred yards away from the spot where he descended the shag feeds almost exclusively on fishes and these are chased through the water with incredible skill the bird may thus be watched by the hour together swimming and diving propelling itself by its feet and bringing the captured fish to the surface to swallow them at the approach of night the shag almost invariably betakes itself to the shelter of some cave or fissure and it is no uncommon sight along the rock-bound shore to see a dozen of the birds hurrying along close to the sea in silence towards the rocks where they sleep the shag breeds in may its favourite nesting haunts are the caves and fissures in the cliffs but where such are wanting or not available the bird will content itself with a cranny amongst the rocks of a low island 
If plenty of accommodation exists, many pairs of shags will nest in company. Where suitable sites are scarce, the birds breed in scattered pairs along the coast. It is more than probable that the shag pairs for life. It returns season by season to its old nesting place. The nest of this species is either wedged into some crevice of the sides or roof, or made upon a ledge in a cave. Sometimes a hole in the face of a wall-like cliff is chosen. Less frequently a site is selected amongst the rough boulders of a reef, or even on a ledge of the cliffs where they overhang considerably. In most cases the nest is bulky and made of sticks, stalks of plants, and seaweed, lined with straws, coarse grass, and turf, all more or less matted together with droppings, decaying fish, and slime, and smelling most unpleasantly. Many nests are enlarged and patched up year by year. The two, three, or fourth eggs are a little smaller than those of the cormorant, of a delicate bluish green where the thick coating of lime does not conceal it. The shag shows more reluctance to leave its nest than the cormorant does. The effect is most startling as the big birds dash out of the gloomy sea caves one after another. The only note I have ever heard the species utter has been a low croak. Gannet. This remarkable bird differs in many important respects from all other pelagic species inhabiting the temperate portions of the northern hemisphere. Outside the limits of the British Islands, its only other breeding places in Europe are on Iceland and the Faroes. The gannet or salon goose, the sublobassana of Brisson and modern naturalists, is one of the most pelagic of birds. Except during the breeding season, it is rarely seen near land. The thousands of birds that congregate in a few chosen spots round the British coast dispersing themselves far out to sea as soon as the duties of the year are over. Like the albatross, the gannet may almost be said to live in the air. Its powers of flight are simply magnificent. Occasionally a few odd birds may be observed here and there fishing in the bays during autumn and winter, but the person who would study its habits and movements thoroughly must visit one of its breeding places. There are many colonies of gannets around the British coast, one of the most accessible and perhaps the most famous being on the Bass Rock in the Firth of Forth. There are small ones on Lundy Island and Grassholm, large ones on Sulskerry, Sulisker, St Kilda, Alyssa Craig and Little Skellig. The adult plumage of the gannet is white, tinged with buff on the head and neck, except the primaries, which are black. The bare skin round the base of the bill is blue. The bird probably does not attain its white plumage until nearly four years old, passing through a series of moulted stages of black, brown and white. The younger hatch blind and naked, but eventually become clothed in dense white down. Other structural peculiarities are the closed nostrils and the subcutaneous air cells almost covering the body which the bird can fill with air at will, as they communicate with the lungs. Whether seen at its nest or when fishing at sea, the gannet is a remarkably interesting bird. As may naturally be inferred, a bird so light and buoyant as the gannet does not obtain its food by diving. It is incapable of submerging itself even for a little distance, except by gaining sufficient momentum from a plunge headlong from some distance in the air. Nevertheless, the gannet feeds exclusively on fishes, which it catches almost like a tern, by dropping from a great height and seizing or impaling them with its strong bill. The gannets follow the shoals of fish as they swim near the surface. First one bird, and then another, will be seen to poise itself, and then, with closed wings, to dash downwards, glinting like a piece of white marble in the sun, into the sea, disappearing for a moment, then rising again into the air to prepare for another descent. Many gannets at these times may, perhaps, be seen swimming, but they are merely resting, not fishing. The captured fish is invariably swallowed at once. Visiting birds are kept well supplied with fish by their mates. These shoals, however, are not conveyed to them in the bill, but in the gullet, from which they are disgorged, and left by the nest side to be eaten as required. Very often a gannet will disgorge several large fish before leaving its nest, whilst many more fish are brought to the rocks than are actually eaten. 
the gannet is a voracious eater and often so gorges itself with food as to be incapable of flight the power of wing of this beautiful bird is wonderful in the extreme i have seen the gannet repeatedly keep the air for hours together apparently without effort wheeling in graceful curves and ascending to vast heights just as vultures are wont to do although the gannet is resident in british waters it seldom comes near land except to breed during the nesting season it is very gregarious and some of its stations contain many thousands of pairs early in the spring gannets begin to assemble at the breeding places and towards the end of april nest building commences the nests are made either on the ledges of the cliffs amongst the broken rock fragments at the summit or on the flat table-like tops of pinnacles and stacks where the birds are numerous and the accommodation limited great numbers of nests are crowded together and as may readily be inferred such close companionship leads to not a few battles between the birds themselves indeed a sort of guerrilla warfare is being waged constantly and is by no means one of the least interesting features of the never-to-be-forgotten scene the nest of the gannet possesses little architectural beauty and is generally so trodden out of shape as to resemble a mere heaped mass of rubbish caked together with droppings and slime and filth giving off an almost unbearable stench especially in a hot calm day in may and june seaweed masses of turf straws moss and stalks of marine plants are the principal materials the nest is shaped like a flattened cone the cavity at the top being shallow it is no unusual thing to see the bird adding to their nests even when incubation is in progress the gannet lays but a single egg but if this be taken as it often is especially in colonies easily accessible to man the bird will replace it several times in succession it is pale bluish green but generally so thickly coated with chalky matter and later with stains as to hide all traces of this colour there are few more noisy animated scenes in bird life than a gannet colony during the height of the breeding season the stirring sight once witnessed can never be forgotten the air for many yards from the face of the cliffs and high above it is filled with thousands of flying gannets every available spot on the edges and face of the rock itself is occupied by a gannet the standing birds vying with each other in uttering harsh cries the flying birds silently drifting to and fro in a mazy bewildering throng many of the flying birds are carrying nest materials many of the birds standing on the rocks are fast asleep on every side the gannets are eyeing you suspiciously some disgorging fish previous to taking wing others barking defiance as you approach them and stubbornly remaining upon their egg until absolutely pushed from it rock sea and air teem with birds it will however be remarked that none of the birds fly over the land all keep to the face of the cliffs at the bass rock numbers of young gannets used to be taken for food the proprietor baking quantities and selling them to the country people round about the taste for baked sullen goose however is not so prevalent as formerly and the custom seems likely to die out at st kilda however the gannet harvest still continues to be gathered and the young birds form a welcome article of food End of section 6